Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This is our final episode on the book of Revelation, believe it or not. Now, I know we are beginning the book of Matthew in our reading plan this week, but we're still going to focus on the end of the book of Revelation. We're going to get into Matthew and introduce that next week because I think most people probably need a little more help with Revelation than with Matthew. So we're going to spend one more week on Revelation before we transition to the final book, Matthew, in our reading plan, and we'll spend five weeks on the Gospel of Matthew, so we'll have time to get into that later. But for now, we're going to focus on Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the final two chapters in Scripture. And I would say two of the most significant chapters in Scripture. But to really understand these chapters, we need to understand the overall story of the Bible. And I'll explain why here as we go along. So to understand this, We need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and specifically to the Garden of Eden. Now, keep in mind, God is omnipresent, which just means that he's not limited by space and time like we are. He doesn't have dimensions, spatial dimensions. He's everywhere at once. He's infinite. But God at times reveals his presence in a special way in certain locations. And in Genesis, at the beginning, God's special presence was originally limited to the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve experienced God's special blessing and his intimate presence in the Garden of Eden. Now, a couple things to note here. Genesis 3.18 describes God as walking in the garden. Now, this term walking is the same term later used to describe God's presence amongst Israel in the tabernacle. So God walked among Adam and Eve. They had free access to God, unhindered access to God. It also says in Genesis that Adam and Eve were commanded to work and keep the garden. And when those two words are used elsewhere in the Old Testament together, it refers to the work of priests. So Adam and Eve are in some ways like priests working in God's special presence. And then Genesis 3.21 describes Adam and Eve being clothed with garments of skin, and that word clothed is later used to describe the priests being dressed in their holy garments. So Adam and Eve work and they dwell in the intimate presence of God. Eden was a place where heaven and earth intersected. And what are Adam and Eve commanded to do? They're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why that was the big command given to them? It seems kind of kind of weird, doesn't it? But understand that outside of the garden wasn't Eden. God's special presence was limited to Eden, to the Garden of Eden. But as Adam and Eve multiplied, the garden would also be multiplied. 
So they were going to expand the geographical boundaries of the garden. They were going to turn the wilderness into the garden. As image bearers of God, they were going to multiply God's special presence to the ends of the earth. But, of course, instead they sinned and they went their own way. And they were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out of God's special presence. And then later, remember, God makes a covenant with Abraham and he promises to bless him. God says he's going to bring redemption through Abraham's descendants. And Abraham's descendants become the people of Israel. And God enters into a covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And if you remember, Israel builds a tabernacle as part of this covenant. And the tabernacle is a a tent-like structure. It's basically a, a mobile temple. And God dwells in the most holy place in the tabernacle. But remember, only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place. And that was only once a year. That was on the day of atonement. So what a far cry from what Adam and Eve had. When they had unhindered free access to God, Israel now has very indirect access to him. But he is in their midst once again. He's dwelling with his people once again, even if it's not ideal circumstances. Then a little bit later, remember Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. It's basically the same setup as the tabernacle, but it's a more permanent structure. And God again dwells in the most holy place in the temple. But eventually Israel begins to turn from God. They start to fall into idolatry and disobey God's word. And eventually, as the book of Ezekiel describes, God's presence leaves the temple. And Israel is exiled from the land. They're kicked out of the land promised to Abraham, similar to how Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And then there's silence for 400 years. Until God's presence returns in a very special way, God himself comes to dwell among us. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, God in the flesh, comes to earth to redeem humanity. But even still, God's special presence is is limited to him. It's still limited in its geographic scope. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, he pours out his spirit on believers at Pentecost. And now all believers have the special presence of God inside of them. And as we live out the Great Commission, as we make disciples of all nations, we are multiplying God's special presence to the ends of the earth. We're living out the original command that God gave Adam and Eve. But even still, God's special presence is limited in some way. But then we come to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And it describes the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and being united with the new earth. Heaven and earth are united. And significantly, the new Jerusalem is measured. Now, it's easy to read past this and and just overlook this, but this is very important. The new Jerusalem is described as being 12,000 stadia in height, width, and length. Now, as with many other numbers in Revelation, this is likely meant to be symbolic. You have the number 12 here, which is very significant in Scripture, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. So you have the number 12 multiplied by 1,000. 
So we have 12,000 stadia in length, width, and height. And stadia is an ancient unit of measure. This is about 1,500 miles. 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. But again, it's likely not meant to be a literal description. The reference here is to something that's enormous. And it's also a place of perfection. It's, it's the perfect place to live. Now, significantly, the New Jerusalem is des- described as a cube. Remember, I said it's 12,000 stadia in height, width, and length. And there's only one other cube described in Scripture. It's the most holy place, the place where God's special presence dwells. So don't miss this. The entire new creation will be the most holy place. God's special presence will finally and completely fill all of creation. It says in, in Revelation 21, 22, that John did not see a temple in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the entire new creation is a temple. This will be the fulfillment of, of what started in the Garden of Eden. And significantly, we see imagery and allusions to Eden in the new creation. First of all, John starts Revelation 21 by saying he saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is a clear reference back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now God is creating a new heavens and a new earth. And in Revelation 22, we see a new tree of life that eternally yields its fruit. And it can do this because it has roots that have access to the eternal river of life. There's a river flowing through the new creation just as a river watered the Garden of Eden. And rivers in Scripture symbolize the presence of God, specifically replenishment and refreshment for God's people. And we also see that the curse is reversed in the new creation. There's no more curse resulting from sin. Sin has been finally and completely defeated. Another interesting thing here is that it says God's name will be on his people's foreheads. What does that mean? Well, understand the high priest of Israel wore God's name on his forehead in the Old Testament. So this is saying that all of God's people will be like high priests. So instead of just one man having access to God once a year, as Revelation 21.3 says, God's dwelling will be with his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So you can see how Revelation 21 and 22 are the perfect ending to Scripture. It's the fulfillment of themes that started way back in Genesis 1 and 2, but this time, things turn out infinitely better. God's kingdom is going to be the entire new creation, and we're going to dwell for eternity and in an indescribably beautiful place with no more pain or suffering or disease or death. So Revelation 21 and 22 are the perfect ending to God's indescribable, incredible story of redemption. Now, a couple other notes here. You're going to see some other imagery in these chapters. Remember, this is still apocalyptic literature. For example, it says there's no sea in the new creation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there are no bodies of water in the new creation. Remember, in ancient thought, the sea represented evil and chaos and danger. So this simply means that everything evil and destructive and opposed to God will be forever defeated. We also see in Revelation 21, 23, that it says the city, the new Jerusalem, doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it 
because the glory of God gives its light. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah 60, 19 through 20. As we've said all along, almost all the imagery in the book of Revelation has a home somewhere in the Old Testament. But this isn't necessarily saying that there will be no sun or moon or stars. The emphasis here isn't on the elimination of celestial bodies. The emphasis is on the magnificence of the glory of God. The new creation is going to be dominated by the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God. Now, I want to say a few other things here. Many Christians, I think, have an inaccurate view of what eternity will be like. We tend to imagine floating on the clouds and playing harps. And a lot of people think, well, we're just going to be doing that forever. That sounds boring. And I agree with those people. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. And it's not. That's not a biblical picture of eternity. Those are cultural ideas. Those come more from movies and the media. Now, understand, to give you a biblical picture of what the afterlife looks like, currently when believers die, their souls go to be with the Lord. Paul talks about how to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is what we call the intermediate state in theology, or it's what we call heaven right now. When our, when our loved ones pass away, we say that they're in heaven now. And that's true, but heaven as it currently exists isn't our eternal destination. Because as Revelation 21 and 22 describe, heaven and earth are going to be united. And our bodies will be resurrected and we're going to live in physical bodies in a physical place. We're meant to be physical creatures. That's how God created us. And that's what we're going to be for all of eternity. So don't imagine eternity as some otherworldly thing. We're going to dwell on the new earth. And when scripture talks about the new heaven and the new earth, it doesn't mean that the old creation is completely annihilated. The first heaven and the first earth pass away in the sense that they are transformed. They are cleansed from all evil. All the effects of the curse are gone. The old creation is purified. But we're still going to dwell in a physical place. So don't imagine eternity as floating on the clouds. Imagine life on this earth, but experiencing the unhindered glory of God and not having to worry about death or disease or suffering. And obviously scripture doesn't tell us everything about what the new earth will be like, but we can infer some things. For example, keep in mind that Adam and Eve were given work to do before they sinned. Work isn't a result of sin, contrary to what some people might think. So it's likely that we will work as well. God created us to have a purpose. That's regardless of the effects of sin. But imagine being able to live out your calling, your unique calling, and being able to use your gifts, your abilities, your talents that God has given you without having to worry about, am I going to make ends meet? Am I going to be able to pay my bills without all of the stresses and other disappointments of work currently? Imagine work as it was meant to be, fulfilling and purposeful. That's what work will be like in the new creation. And we're going to live in a physical place still, as I said, with all of its natural wonders. So there will still be 
exploration and, and recreation and play and fun, but now without all of the negatives that we have now. And I think there will still be sports. You know, some people imagine golf in eternity and they think, well, everyone's just going to get a hole in one, so that's kind of boring. But just because there's no sin in the new creation doesn't mean that we're all going to be all powerful. Like God, we're not going to be. We're still going to be limited beings. And just because there's no sin doesn't mean we can't have competition and lose at things. Competition does sometimes now bring out the worst in us, but maybe the new creation will allow us to experience the redeemed version of competition and and having fun. So again, don't imagine eternity as playing a harp and floating around in the cloud. That's not what eternity will be like. Imagine life on this earth, but without the bad, without the pain, the suffering, the death, without all the goodbyes. Life as it was always meant to be. That's what the new earth will be like. All of our deepest longings that we have now will be fulfilled. And most importantly, we will have unhindered, free access to God. We're going to be in the magnificence of the glory of God. That should excite us. And that's what's important because what we think about eternity determines how we live now. And I know I've said it before on this podcast, but a principle that I like to live by is eternal thinking fuels everyday living. Eternal thinking fuels everyday living. But the problem is many people's view of eternity isn't very exciting to them. We see depictions of heaven in the media and in movies and we think, that doesn't make me very excited. I want to stay on this earth. But that's why it's so important for us to understand what eternity, what the new earth will actually be like. Because when we understand that, it motivates us to make our few short years count right now. When we understand that the true reward, the life that is truly life, as scripture calls it, when we understand that is yet to come, we won't waste our days now trying to accumulate things or chase after idols. We're going to live to make investments in our eternal home. You know, how, how much emphasis do we place on making investments for retirement? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but how many years are we realistically talking about for retirement? Especially when compared to eternity. Let's make investments in our eternal home. Let's live to help as many people as possible enter into God's eternal kingdom. So I want to challenge you to try something this week. I want to challenge you to read these two chapters we talked about this week, Revelation 21 and 22. Read them every day for a week. Now, maybe this is in addition to your normal reading. Maybe it's in place of it, however you want to do it. But I want to challenge you to read these chapters every day this week. And not just read through them in a casual sense, but really try to meditate on them and pray through them. And see how this impacts your life. See how it impacts the way that you live right now. See, many Christians live like we don't know the end of the story. But the end of the story's already been written. So spend some time thinking about that. Spend some time fixing your eyes on the end, on eternity, by reading Revelation 21 and 22. Let eternal thinking fuel your everyday living and find hope in the reward that's coming. 
In the words of the Apostle Paul, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.